we're working our way up to a second warning in the book of Hebrews. You remember this is the warning flag, right? But I'm wondering, uh, do you remember the warning from last week? Do you remember what the warning was? Someone want to yell it out to me? What's the warning? Do not drift away. It goes on a little further than that, a little more. Right. If the message delivered by angels was true and brought with it appropriate punishments for disobedience, how shall we escape so great a salvation? The implication being the one delivered by Jesus Christ. That's the first warning. So be warned. And we're working our way to the second warning, but we're not gonna get there this week because the author has a few things he has to say first before we're ready to receive the warning. It's important that we understand, and the author pauses to explain this, not only the significance of what Jesus did, but the reason that Jesus walked the road that he did. It's good for us to understand why the author feels the need to explain the path Jesus took. In a sense, what we have in this passage is a formal apology in the sense of apologetics, a defense, a rational defense of the faith. You say, well, why is a defense of the faith needed? Well, the reason we need a defense is because what we see in the world around us doesn't match up with what we know to be true. There's a disconnect. Reality is that Jesus is the vehicle of creation and everything that the author says in chapter one, verses one through four, is absolutely true about Jesus. You remember the list? The one who perfectly reflects the character of God one through whom all is created, the one who holds all of creation together through his being, all those things are true. But the author also tells us, at this moment, we do not see everything subjected to Jesus, let alone the angels, at this moment. So here are two things that are true. Jesus is more than we can fathom and is in fact the king of creation, and this creation and its creatures do not universally serve and obey the king. And so you have to bring these two things together. And so we need an explanation, and I'm going to begin reading in Hebrews 2, roughly verse 10. Hebrews 2. It was fitting that God, for whom and through whom all things exist, in bringing many children to glory, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one Father. For this reason, Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters in the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. And again, I will put my trust in him, and again, here I am and the children whom God has given me. 
Since therefore the children share flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared the same things, so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. For it is clear that he did not come to help angels, but the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, he had to become like his brothers and sisters in every respect, so so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in service of God, to make a sacrifice of atonement for the sins of the people, because he himself was tested by what he suffered, he is able to help those who are being tested. Our author is telling us that God is in the process of bringing his children to glory. That's what God is doing. And the method that God chooses to bring his sons and daughters to glory is to come to earth and take on their humanity for himself and to live and die as one of them in order to defeat death and render it powerless. That's his method. Jesus has come to defeat death. In order to defeat death, he must pass through it and demonstrate his power over it. The problem is the process of passing through it means that to the watching world, it appears that he loses his battle with death. But that's not the case. This is why Jesus appears to his disciples after the resurrection and to as many as 400 other people. Jesus dies, defeats death, passes through it, demonstrates his power over death by tasting it for everyone, all according to the plan of God that has existed before time was created. And so now the author explains. It is fitting that God should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through suffering. Why suffering? I think it's clear, we all suffer. And because we all suffer, Jesus is identifying with us when he becomes one of us and suffers like one of us. Jesus' model life is based on the premise that anyone can look to Jesus and identify with the one who ran this race first. I mean, if Jesus waltzed through this life and was never tempted, was never tired or hungry, never suffered, never faced death and loss, humiliation or torture, how could people really believe that he understood them when they called out to him? We call out to God when we're in dire straits and we want to know that God understands us, that he can empathize with us, that he knows what it's like to be in our shoes. When I was in college, my first voice teacher was a gentleman who was so gifted, so talented. He's one of those people you look at and they sort of make you a little sick because they can do everything perfectly and it doesn't seem to take them any work at all. 
And he was this amazing tenor, and he had sung with this symphony orchestra. He was a wonderful man, but he was just so stinking talented. And so when I went to the studio to try to learn singing from him, he was so far beyond me. The things he did naturally and effortlessly weren't things he could easily tell me how to do. And I, I switched teachers after a year because I felt like he could never put himself in my place. He couldn't help me because he didn't understand that when he, said, when he said, do this, and he would sing a line, and I'd say, how? He says, I don't know, just do it. And that, that's not particularly helpful. Jesus becomes one of us so that when we go through difficult times and we call out to the one who can help us, we know there's someone who really understands because he's been in our shoes. We used to sing a song in church that went like this. No one understands like Jesus Every woe he sees and feels Tenderly he whispers comfort And the broken heart he heals No one understands like Jesus When you falter on the way Though you fail him, sadly fail him he will pardon you today. No one understands like Jesus when the days are dark and grim. No one is so near, so dear as Jesus. Cast your every care on him. That's, that's the truth of what this author is saying here. He understands us. We know that God understands us because we have this record of his life that demonstrates that he has been where we are. He understands and he's able to help. So how does the author of Hebrews tell us this? How does he, how does he help us understand how we're like one another, in addition to citing all of the events of his life. In verse 12 and 13, we have a, a method of writing that we learned back in the first chapter, where the author quotes Old Testament Psalms and other writings to make points. And I'm not going to go into the level of detail that I did a couple of weeks ago to exactly show how the correlations work. But the author is saying three things in these quotations in verses 12 and 13. This is what he's saying. First of all, he's saying, Jesus identifies us as siblings. He calls us brothers and sisters. He's connected to us, and he understands our setting. If you have siblings, you know at some level what this means. Uh, you're all roughly raised by at least one parent. That's the same. You have common life experiences. You, you can get inside each other's head pretty easily. If it's like my family, you know each other's buttons and you can press them. You know, that's what siblings do. There's a, there's a closeness to siblings that's significant. 
Jesus identifies us as siblings of his. That's a great thing to know that Jesus knows us that well. The second thing in these psalm uh, quotations he says is that Jesus identifies with us as a worshiper. We, we worship God and on his earthly life here, he worshiped the Father in the same way. He's, he's a worshiper as we are of the Father. And the third thing he says is, Jesus was a believer. He had to trust that his Father would hear his prayer and answer. And there was a level of faith necessary for the human Jesus to believe that when he said, Lazarus, come forth, the Father would energize his prayer and make that miracle happen. It was the connection between the Father and the Spirit and Jesus that caused the miracles of Jesus to happen. That power wasn't in the flesh of Jesus. It was in the unity that it was energized by the faith of Jesus. And that's another way that he identifies with us. He and we are believers. He understands us. And I think almost as importantly, we know that he understands us. I mean, there's two sides to this coin of identification. We can, by faith, believe that the God who knows everything knows how we feel. But that's an act of faith. It's different to have that faith proven to us. The life of Jesus proves, demonstrates to us that he understands what we're going through. Remember, faith is believing what we have not seen, but in Jesus, we see that God understands because we know from the record of the eyewitnesses that he experienced the same kinds of things in similar degrees to the things we experience. He moved compassion out of the realm of faith and into the realm of visible certainty and reality for us. So then, since we have this connection with Jesus, Jesus, the one with whom we share flesh and blood. Jesus, the one who experienced life on the same terms as we experience. Jesus, the one who came to help us. I wonder, why not let him do the things he came to do? He suffered to prove that he understands. He died to prove that he could pass through death and demonstrate his power over it. He lives to free us from the fear of death and to help us live as children of God in this very difficult age. He desires to be our priest. What do priests do? First of all, they bring God to humanity And secondly, they bring humanity to God. The role of the priest is to point humans to God. Look, there he is. This is who he is. He is trustworthy. The role of the priest is to point humans to God. But the role of the priest is also to petition God on behalf of humans. 
God, these people are struggling. Help them. These people are frail. They make many mistakes. Have mercy on them. Forgive them. God, these people desire to honor you, but they are hindered in so many ways. Give them aid. Remove their enemies. God, these people are foolishly blind to who you are. Give them a glimpse of your glory. It is an awesome thing to have a priest who has integrity, compassion, understanding, faith, and common experience. The author of Hebrews is telling we have exactly that kind of priest. That's exactly who Jesus is. I know this isn't the best illustration, but this was the best thing that came to mind as I was thinking about the, the core message of this passage. And it's not my intention to take a cheap shot at any other expression of Christianity, but I have to confess, I've talked with a few couples in marriage counseling and others who have said to me, you know, we went to the priest at our Catholic church, but we weren't quite sure how he could tell us anything to help us for our marriage. And you understand what I'm saying? Um, it's not that you can't learn a lot through study and experience and wisdom, but if you haven't really been there, if you've, if you've never been married, it's hard to really understand what marriage is about. The core of this whole passage is Jesus knows exactly how you feel because he experienced it. He experienced. When I first included this illustration in my sermon, I thought to myself, yeah, but Jesus wasn't married. So how does that work? And then I thought to myself, well, which is more difficult? Marriage or a life of single celibacy. I don't know. I know that given the limitations of humanity, you can't have both. It's one or the other, right? So my assumption is he decided that the first, that, that the first was more difficult, the, the life of a single. I, I, don't, I don't know. But the core message here is the same. The humiliation, the torture, the, the constant reckoning with man's inhumanity to man. I mean, think of how it felt to be Jesus on the day when his cousin John the Baptist was beheaded. It's tough wrestling with a murder in the family. You know, think about how it feels to be Jesus on the day that his mother and brothers come to take him home because they think he's nuts and his immediate family thinks he's a lunatic. So much for sibling support. Think how it feels to have the torture and the misunderstanding of a public trial and humiliation and carrying your cross part way to Calvary and being hung naked on a cross as a common criminal when you've done not one thing wrong. I mean, today we get, we get angry and wave our fist even when we're wrong because we're not as wrong as somebody else. And so we think we deserve better treatment than that. And 
in the face of that level of injustice. You remember the sentiment of the old gospel song. He could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free. He could have called 10,000 angels, but he died alone for you and me. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He's the one who understands us and loves us. More than that, the whole meaning of his death is that in him we can have new life. The whole reason he comes is so that death can be defeated and that we can be reconciled to God. And that reconciliation involves the Holy Spirit moving from external to us to internal to us. So that the Old Testament law, which is a great and wonderful gift to us, but was powerless to help us, is superseded by a new covenant in which Jesus, the high priest and mediator of this new covenant, gives himself as the perfect sacrifice once for all that we can be reconciled to God and having been reconciled to God, rather than just knowing the law of love and knowing what God requires, he by his spirit actually moves into us and helps us fulfill it. And that's why that gospel is so superior to the Old Testament. It's that we have an advocate now, one who lives in us to help us be the children of God, to live as sons and daughters of God, to be victorious in this world, to rely on the one who loves us and understands us, who's as close to us as our calling out his name, closer than that, living inside of us to encourage us to do what he calls us to do. That's, that's the Jesus we serve. This morning, we celebrate together the, the communion meal. And in a very physical way, the symbolism is that we're taking the body and blood of Christ into ourselves. We're, we're receiving the body and blood of Christ. It's, it's a symbol of many things, but it is a symbol of the fact that the Holy Spirit is given to us that he might reside in us. And this morning as we, as we receive this communion meal together, I would invite you to reflect on that part of the symbolism, that in receiving the body and blood of Christ, we are once again inviting him in. We are stating our kinship with him, sons and daughters of God sharing flesh and blood with Jesus, and that as we receive the body and blood of Christ, we remember that we're a part of this great new covenant, and that Jesus is our priest, that he's anxious to hear all that you had to say, but he's also inviting you to a deeper and closer walk with him that through our lives we may glorify him. I'm gonna ask those who are going to assist me in serving to come at this time. I'll read some opening words and after that I'll invite you to stand and move to the exterior part of the aisles and receive communion, but I'll invite you to stand in just a few minutes.
It is right and a good and joyful thing, always and everywhere, to give thanks to you, gracious God, creator of heaven and earth. You formed us in your image and breathed into us the breath of life. When we turned away and our love failed, your love remained steadfast. According to your divine plan, Jesus came to earth and lived among us to show us how to live. He died to free us from sin and death, and he lives forever as our faithful and merciful high priest. And so, with your people on earth and all the company of heaven, we praise your name and join in the singing of this hymn. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, early in the morning our song shall rise to thee. Holy, 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 merciful and mighty God in three persons blessed Trinity the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let us pray. Almighty God, to you all hearts are open, all desires known and from you no secrets are hidden. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that, that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name through Christ our Lord. Pour out your Holy Spirit on us gathered here and on these gifts, that in the breaking of this bread and the drinking of this juice, we may know the presence of the living Christ and be renewed as the body of Christ for the world redeemed by Christ's blood. May your spirit sanctify us that we might be one, united in mission and committed to loving God and neighbor with all that we are. Amen. I'd invite you to stand and come and receive the gifts of God for the people of God. body of Christ, the bread of heaven. As we once again take Christ into our lives, let us do so with rejoicing. The blood of Christ the cup of our, of our salvation. 
with gratitude for the ministry of our faithful and merciful high priest. Let us drink together with joy. One hundred fifty-two. One hundred fifty-two. Just our voices, let's sing the first and the last verse together of this song. One hundred fifty-two. Fairest Lord Jesus, ruler of all nature, and abound in love for one another and for all, so that he may establish in your hearts holiness, a blamelessness before God and our Father at the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. <laughs>